This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Tom and Brandy this morning having a look at everything that's coming out of Adipac with our colleague Richard Dean, who is down the road. That includes looking at the way up between sustainability and keeping the lights on. We're going to hear from Hardeep Singh Puri, who is the Energy Minister of India. He has been down there in Abu Dhabi, as indeed has our energy expert of the morning, Sean Evers from Gulf Intelligence, who is commenting to us this morning about the strong Saudi Aramco numbers that we have seen out. What else? Strong numbers, strong job numbers. They are impacting the markets today and they are going to weigh in on the Fed decision that we're expecting a little bit later on. We're going to hear from Emirates MBD and their economists on that. Plus, Kareem has tied up with a company that wants to do your laundry. We're going to find out what that means for Kareem's journey as a super app. Big day for the Fed today over in the United States. Brandy, you've been seeking thoughts and opinions of all things US. Yeah, I have indeed. Look, we kind of know what's going to happen, and that's a 75 basis point rise. It is, as they like to say, baked in. Um, the questions are more, what is um, Jed Powell, what is the uh, the Fed chairman going to say um, when he stands up when the numbers are announced? Because what he says is going to be raked over for clues um, as to how long we could see this tightening cycle go on um, and, and what kind of rate increases we could see in months to come. A lot of banks are predicting at the moment there will be at about 5% by March. Okay. At the same time, we're watching job numbers, unemployment numbers this morning, the jolts, that's the uh, the jobs that are out there for people who want them, uh, very closely. And any kind of good news that suggests that there's lots of employment um, is actually bad news for the market. So we asked Daniel Richards this morning, he's a senior economist at Emirates MBD, why that was and what he would be listening for from the Fed. Data out of the US was a little mixed yesterday, and this will make the Fed's decision-making process a little more complicated. So from a Fed's perspective, a surprise fall in the ISM prices paid measure to below the neutral 50 level could be an indication that disinflation is finally starting to set in. However, the headline PMI surveys were generally positive, and indeed the S&P Global Index was revised up on the final print. But probably the key data point released yesterday from the Fed's perspective was the JOLTS report, which covers the number of job openings in the US. And this came in at 10.7 million. That's higher than the previous month and far higher than the expected 9.8 million. Now, this was not very well received by equity markets in particular, which lost their earlier gains and ended the day down as the high number of job openings potentially means upwards pressure on wages and stickier and more entrenched inflationary pressures as a result. And this means longer or higher for longer from the Fed. So as it stands, a 475 base point hike today looks nailed on. What will be key to watch for are any comments around a potential slowdown in the statement or press conference um, with, with the result. And the NFP report due at the end of the week should give a further sign as to where the labour market is headed, and that should give an indication as to where the Fed might be headed. That's Dan Richards of Emirates MBD. So, yeah, looking at all the numbers, listening to the Fed this morning, waiting to see what happens next, and most of the markets are in that phase as well. 
It's interesting because we're looking at the US and we're constantly looking for evidence, aren't we, of what's happening in the US market. You mentioned there those job numbers better than expected at the moment, despite sort of all sorts of predictions of the impending explosion uh, of the uh, jobs market, but it seems to have held fair uh, at the moment. The other thing that's really interesting in the markets, and there's some interesting data out from IPO research firm Renaissance Capital overnight, uh, suggesting that there's been a real slowdown in IPOs over in the United States, which is in stark contrast to... Oh, yes. ...here at the moment. In fact, only two companies went public last month across the whole of the United States. Uh, That was the slowest October for the IPO market since 2011. Uh, What's more, only 66 companies have gone public so far this year. That's down more than 80% from a year ago. Um, Not just the IPOs. What about the IPOs with the the mythical horn in the front of their, uh, in between their eyes, the unicorns (laughs) out there? Uh, Several high-profile unicorns uh, have reportedly pushed off plans to go public this year, many hoping to do so instead uh, in 2023 uh, if and when a broader market improves. Uh, The names that uh, have been mentioned uh, in that um, uh, uh, particular tranche uh, are, of course, Instacart, the grocery shopping service, Uh, the social media site Reddit and the fintech giant Stripe. But there is a divide there, isn't there? Companies just willing not to take the risk at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it depends where you are. And it's what kind of reaction you think you're going to get from the market, doesn't it? I mean, look at Barouge the first day up nearly fourfold um, in its trading. We've got that, uh, what they're calling a landmark listing for Americana. They, the pizza people, um, who will be both in Abu Dhabi and in Riyadh. That hasn't been done before. We've got Empower just increasing its offering this morning. 15% of share capital up for grabs rather than 10%. Uh, Talim also in the last two or three days confirming its listing um, it's going to go public and uh, then list on the dfm it's been a huge week for it yeah um, we're looking ahead to 2023 uh, and again this is in stark contrast to what we were saying yesterday we were saying yesterday a lot of companies here are desperate to get their ipos done before 2023 whereas those in the united states are saying oh no, i'm just going to wait till the end of the year and see if things improve next year and a couple of those that are being highlighted by wall street analysts for 2023 um, include uh, fanatics and the sports merchandise leader uh, fortnite owner epic games and the mobile bank app chime are among the top candidates for ipos in 2023 stateside that is well, speaking of American listed companies, um, let's have a talk about Twitter. I want to get your opinion on something because I am divided. Um, I'm going through the whole thread that Elon Musk has posted um, about this blue tech business. Uh, he originally came out, well, it was suggested that it could be uh, $20 for a blue tech. That's what the rumours were. Um, he's come back and said, Eight bucks um, is what he is thinking of charging people to keep their blue tick. The blue tick is your verification on Twitter to say that you are who you say you are and you're a bit important. It's important for the system, actually, because then you know that you are listening to the people that that you think you are. Um, Yeah, it's a 
bit of an ego thing, can we say? It's a mark of pride. Um, and he's come in and tweeted initially quite a provocative Twitter's current lords and peasants system for those who don't have a, a blue check mark or not is beep. Um, power to the people, blue for $8 a month, showing that he is indeed open to negotiation. But his reasoning is actually really interesting. So I am divided. Is this a money-making opportunity? Yeah, halfway down the thread, um, he admits that it will give Twitter a revenue stream, um, which is great because that's one of the things that always bedevils um, social media content. How do you make revenue without killing the golden goose baby and uh, get maybe even getting rid of the people um, who have, have made it good? Um, but he's got a lot more in there as well. You'll get half as many ads if you are one of these $8 people. Um, he's talking about uh, the ability to post longer videos and audio for those who are paying for it. And I'm thinking of Netflix and its whole, if you pay a little bit more, you don't get the ads. Are we getting different tiers of access? Is that how a lot of these companies are going to make more money? And is that a good thing or not? Yeah, Stephen King is one of those users, Twitter users, who's not happy about it. He are you tweeted about the author? yesterday. Yeah. He said, $20 a month to keep my blue check. Uh, they should pay me. <laughs> if that gets instituted, I'm gone like Enron. It ain't about the money, it's the principle of the thing, uh, said Stephen King, with some really bad grammar involved in that as well. Are you sure it was Stephen King? Did he have a blue tick? Yeah, it was the uh, author Stephen King. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's look at one of the big stories this morning. It's the Saudi Aramco earnings, their second highest. Uh, $42 billion in net income. Very pleased to be speaking this morning to the energy expert, Sean Evers, the founder and managing partner of Gulf Intelligence. Sean, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Brandy. Greetings from Adipec. Yeah, and you're right exactly where we want you to be, Sean. I'm going to ask you about the show in a moment. But before we do, looking at those Aramco numbers, tell me why this is more than just a story of high oil prices. Well, I mean, I, I would contest that it is, to be honest. But, uh, you know, Saudi Aramco is a long-established, world-class oil production company. Does, uh, it digs oil out of the ground better than most. It does it at cheaper than most. Uh, and it has done it for longer than most. And in that regard, it does. It, it, when the oil price does climb to, you know, the levels that we've seen this year, above $100 on Brent, one of one is two. If you pump 10 million barrels plus a day of oil, you're going to make a lot of money. So that's pretty much it. Uh, at the same time, though, we've got a bit of lower demand hitting the company in the refinery business, refined fuels, chemical companies. Tell me about that. On the refinery side, there's inevitably a lot more volatility uh, in terms of the, you know, where it goes. Obviously, that is where the price meets the road, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Obviously, you or I do not consume crude oil. We consume products, whether it be diesel or gasoline or aviation fuel when we fly an airplane. And that market tends to be a lot more volatile. We saw in the last 12 months, the first half of that still coming out of COVID, still uh, many parts of the world, and still to this day in China, uh, product demand is still quite low uh, uh, due to the lockdowns that are still going on there. But the second half of this year, of course, uh, uh, that all came back very strongly. And so refiners who weren't making very much money at the beginning of the year were making bionic money in the second half of the year. Talk to me about investment 
um, Sean, because we've had Amin Nasser say that Aramco is going to be the exception to global uninvestment. What do we know about their plans at the moment? Well, I mean, there's many things that have happened in the, in the sort of follow through from COVID and the years since the last oil price crash in 2015, where we saw before COVID collapsed, that was the last price collapse. And so as a result, we've had a big um, uh, a deceleration of investment. Uh, companies less willing, didn't have the money, to be honest, to invest in new capacity. And because of the uncertainty and regulatory oversight in many parts of the world, because of the great energy transition towards greener policies, international oil companies have been somewhat disincentivized to invest what is it ultimately large billions of dollars. So let's say 2014, before the last crash in 15, the average annual spend on CapEx investment in, in new supply was about $750 billion. By the time we got to the, uh, to the COVID crisis, it had dropped well below 300, around 300 billion, so well below 50% drop off. Since COVID, it hasn't really recovered in any great numbers. So the upshot of all of that is that the future new capacity supply is with the national oil companies. It's with Saudi Aramco, it's with Adnoc, it's with the big, particularly Middle East oil producers who have huge reservoirs, low cost of production, and are not burdened with the same sort of activist shareholder, shareholder activism very tight regulatory and uncertain policy guidance. Here, the governments are very clear. We're going to be producing as much oil as we can while we're committed to the transition as well. So in that way, the future is very much with the national oil companies of the Gulf. Is that why we're not hearing as much about investment from some of the uh, some of the big non-national firms, if, if you like, um, when they're announcing their bumper profits at the moment? I mean, ultimately, there's many reasons for that. I would say... The policy side, i.e., why should we invest $20 billion in new production capacity? Let's say the U.S., for example. I think it's Exhibit A, to be honest, because going into COVID, uh, the U.S. oil production was well above 13 million barrels a day. You know, two, three years later, with a $100 average oil price, it still hasn't got back above 12. So they're well a million plus below where they were pre-COVID. And you would think, my goodness, with $100 oil, these guys should be pumping huge amounts of money into the into their new capacity, but they're not, principally because of the uncertain policy outlook, but also because for the years previous, COVID and earlier, their dividends to shareholders was quite low. And these are shareholders. To stay a shareholder in a major oil company, international oil company today, with all of the sort of uh, move against that sort of profile from pension funds and others, Oil companies have to pay whopping dividends to their shareholders to keep them excited and, and engaged. And so that's a lot of the reason why we're seeing such a bionic return of profit to shareholders on this cycle. Sean Evers, founding, uh, founder and managing partner of Gulf Intelligence, joining us live from Abu Dhabi this morning. Thank you for your time. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's focus on all things, well, we'll leave Elon to his everything app, and let's focus on super apps as well, because there's one organisation that's doing a super job of that here in the region uh, and further afield at the moment. Kareem has partnered with yet another world-class 
podcast partner. Uh, Washman this time, an on-demand laundry service to expand the daily and essential services available to customers in the UAE via the Kareem app. Uh, Ali Sinai is the Senior Director of Partnerships at Kareem. He's been kind enough to uh, grab a Kareem and come and see us here this morning live in studio. Ali, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, First and foremost, what does this partnership offer me as a Kareem user? What does Washman bring to the party? Yeah, sure. And this is this is exactly how we how we view our world actually of, of the super app. We start with customer first, and we try to always understand how we can be simplifying their lives by bringing them the services that they want. And we do this through talking to them as well, right? So one of the services, at least here in in our region, that comes up frequently uh, towards the top of the list is this home services category and specifically laundry within that. And the the logic behind it is that it's time consuming. People want to spend their time doing the things that matter to them and that they love or they have to do or, you know, critical to their lives. And they want Kareem to help simplify their lives and take that away from them, the, the, the stress, the hassle, and specifically the time. So Washman does exactly that. So these guys have uh, amazing operations. It's a great organization. They're, they're ready for scale. So we thought the right time to to marry our two uh, entities together and and to help the customer this way. And this is is this off the back of demands or or, or data coming through from customers at the moment saying I need my laundry and my dry cleaning got to me quicker, et cetera, more efficiently. Is that how you're answering and looking to new partnerships? That's exactly how we do it, yeah. So the way that we, you know, we do it in a variety of different ways, but but most importantly, we talk to our customers consistently. Um, we do this through a variety of different ways, but the feedback that comes in feeds directly into into our strategy, into our plans, and and that's how we decide what services um, we want to bring on board for them. So mm. that's it. It's all about simplifying customers' lives. I mean, you did Tickety recently as well. What what does that bring to the, uh, to, to the service? Well, so Tickety is all about uh, lifestyle entertainment. So so already within the last month, we see a lot of families uh, availing the service. Um, you know, I've got a family. I've got two kids myself. And every weekend, the you know, it's like, what do we do? Where do we take our kids? How do we get there? Uh, you know, it's basically, you know, how does it enhance my my lifestyle, my experience, and take stress, hassle, and decision making away from me. On top of that, you know, so for ticketing, for example, mm-hmm. you know, on top of that, that sits on this layer, this platform, what we call it, of of all this infrastructure that we've built. So you don't have to go and figure out, uh, you know, new username, password, and login credentials from scratch. You don't have to set up a new credit card or a wallet from scratch. In the case of uh, Washman. You don't have to set up your addresses because we already have them, right? We pick you up, we take you to your office, we deliver food for you. So, you know, these, these conveniences that we've built for, you know, the first, second, third service, these allow the fourth, fifth, all the way till the, you know, inshallah, the thousand service to avail these. So it's helping me as a customer, Ali, but it's equally helping businesses to scale and, and, and reach more customers. That's right, yeah. So look, this infrastructure that I kind of throw around casually, you know, sometimes we take it for granted, but this infrastructure, we've built this for over 10 years now at Kareem. And this is the same infrastructure that has helped us. You know, we've, we've got 50 million customers across the region. We've done almost 10 billion kilometers in rides. We, we have 2.5 million captains servicing these rides, you know, and we're, we're helping those captains and empowering them and, and improving their lifestyles as well. Then that infrastructure allowed us to start doing the same thing across the food delivery space and now the grocery space in, in the fintech 
uh, 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 world mm -hmm. we're solving payments problems now peer to peer or bill payments so this infrastructure that allowed Kareem's own services to scale this is now like it's perfect it's primed to allow third parties to come and sit on exactly the same thing and benefit from the ability to scale and to to get that Kareem demand. So from your perspective and from where you sit, Ali, in terms of the region that you serve here, how far along the line are we in terms of digital adoption? So, I mean, we think that the opportunity, we're just scratching the surface today. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, conservatively, very conservatively speaking, and this is looking just at the services that Kareem owns and operates. So this doesn't even include the laundries and the tickets and the car rentals of the world. We think that there's a, a trillion dollar opportunity there, like today. So, and you know, we feel that we're best placed and you know, we, it's our responsibility actually to, to service that opportunity. Um, the, the opportunity is everywhere actually. Groceries is a leader in there, but di uh, digital payments is huge. You know, empowering people through transfer of money is really big. Um, obviously rides, <laughs> rides goes without saying. So we think that the opportunity is huge. Is it a super app already or is this part of the journey towards a super app? I mean, you know, at what point do you stop? So it's always a journey, right? But um, definitely we're a super app already. I mean, the fact that today uh, the customer can, you know, open the phone and do six, seven, eight different services uh, immediately. Well, actually, sorry, what am I talking about? We're on 14 services in the UAE. Um, definitely we're a super app. But I mean, it's, again, like I said, it's just the beginning of the journey. Mm. When we talk to our customers, the problems that customers face from a day-to-day -day perspective, just trying to live normal, ordinary lives, there's so many ways that we can help them. Um, so it's just the beginning of the journey. I've got 30 seconds. So the 30-second elevator pitch. Uh, what do you look for in a partner? Well, we, again, in, in helping our customers, we want to make sure that these, these infrastructure elements that I talked about, so specifically that convenience and trust we can bring. You've got your wallet. You've got your location, your identity. You're set up. You've got this identity on Kareem. We need partners that can, A, benefit from this ecosystem. So, you know, for example, with Washman, the fact that you don't have to set up your locations, that's a huge benefit for all three parties, customer, the laundry service, and ourselves, right? The wallet goes without saying. So really, we look for services that can, can benefit from both the demand as well as these, these kind of uh, infrastructure elements. That's my keyword of the morning, I think, uh, that we've built. Ali, thanks so much indeed for joining us live in studio this morning. Ali is the Senior Director of Partnerships at Kareem, celebrating their new partnership with Washman. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right. Let's have a look at what is happening with energy this morning. Richard Dean is not here. The eagle-eyed will notice he's down the road in Adipak in Abu Dhabi, uh, live on location this week, along with um, well, pretty much anyone who's anyone in the energy industry. One of the things that is being discussed very much is how do you go green as an energy producing company or as a major energy consumer? And one of those discussing that has been the Indian Minister for Petroleum and Natural Gas, Hardeep Singh Puri. Uh, he's been addressing the audience, speaking about India's path towards going green. Richard Dean's got the details. So we've got more than 40 energy ministers from around the world here at Adipec this week, including India's Minister of Petroleum. And that's interesting because here in the Middle East, we tend to think of ourselves, well, we know we are major energy producers, but India, of course, a big trading partner and a major energy consumer. So people very keen to hear the thoughts of India's Minister of Petroleum, Hadeep Singh Puri. 
energy availability. We have not had any situation where, uh, you know, petrol, diesel or gas has not been available, but it has a cost to it. And I think all policy decisions um, have consequences, direct and uh, intended and unintended. One of the unintended uh, uh, consequences, perhaps uh, it's a good consequence, is that when uh, prices rose, on the one hand there's inflation movement towards a global recessionary condition, but in India it has also galvanized the movement in the other direction. There's billions of dollars coming in to look at, for instance, the ecosystem for electric vehicles. We've done the transition on biofuels from 1.4%, we've reached 10% blending. We are going to 20% blending in the next two years, bringing the target of 2030 down. Well, the minister was keen to talk about energy transition, but also how important it is to strike that balance. Yes, you want to move towards green energy, but people need energy here and now for heating and for cooking, so we cannot neglect hydrocarbons. In order to make that transition, whatever your transition date is, you have to survive the present. And the survival of the present cannot be on terms of entire economies. There are countries around the world where, you, for the love of money, you cannot access energy. Now, I'm not going into the causation as to why it happened. Underinvestment, whatever happened subsequently. But I think the transition itself would be severely undermined if the current ability especially large consuming countries, is not cushioned in order to make that transition. In India, we feel very confident of being able to make it. We feel confident because we have both domestic thing. I saw uh, uh, Minister Sultan talk about uh, green ammonia supply from here to Hamburg. We have our companies supplying there as well. Uh, one of our companies signed an agreement with the Singapore authorities to supply green ammonia to run their new generation GE plants. All that we will do. But I still make the point that the immediate, because I was very encouraged uh, by the saying that this is realism and optimism. Our um, host, uh, Sultan, uh, Minister Sultan said that. And I think it's always a good start to a morning if you are able to also focus on the realism part of it uh, and say it how it is. And of course, he was keen to weigh in on the big issue here at Adipec this year, which is energy transition. High energy prices, have without any doubt, and I don't think there's a counter narrative, we won't go into the reason. They have a consequence which we need to factor in, but I think one of the unintended causes is that many of us are now going to diversify, we are going to uh, uh, look at alternate uh, areas, alternate energy sources, etc., faster than we had originally envisaged. Don't forget, of course, stay tuned to the Business Breakfast in Dubai I 103.8 FM all week for the latest on the energy industry. And that was India's Ministry for Petroleum and Natural Gas, Hadeep Singh Puri. Um, and Richard, as you can see, there is down in a very busy Adipak. Not the only big hitter down uh, at Adipak, as uh, Richard and Brandy have been mentioning throughout the course of uh, the last couple of days. Uh, they will remain as well, because obviously uh, it comes to a conclusion tomorrow. Uh, we've also been hearing from the chief executive of the US oil field services company, Halliburton, Jeff Miller who was speaking at the event yesterday. He was on a panel that was uh, taking place uh, on day two of the event. Uh, he said the era of exponential growth in the US oil and gas sector is over. 
as companies focus on boosting shareholder returns in, instead. He went on to say that we'll see growing investment, but quite frankly, nothing even close to what we saw from 2008 to 2014. Uh, a U.S. shale resurgence centred around the Permian Basin of Texas and New Mexico uh, turned the country into the world's largest crude producer in 2018. Shale producers, quick to scale up drilling in response to rising crude prices, have been reluctant, however, to increase activities. They come under pressure from investors to boost profits and returns. Companies were spending at a rate of 120% of their cash flow. And that can't go on indefinitely, said Mr. Jeff Miller. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.